The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Good morning and welcome. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open it to Matthew chapter 18. If you don't have a copy of the scripture with you, there's a copy under a chair close by you or on page 824. And if you have not noticed, there are notes to follow along with inside the info guide that is there in your seat, which I would encourage you to do so uh, as also things are placed on the screen to help you to pay attention as we move through Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 through 20. Now, I've been preaching through 1 Corinthians. Last week we dealt with chapter 5. It has to do with this same subject of church discipline, but this text teaches it in a deeper fashion and how this includes the entire church, not just one specific moment in time, which we'll seek to bring that to bear today. So Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, I invite you to stand as I read the word of the Lord. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two, or three, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Lord, we ask now that you would give fruit to the preaching of your word in the hearts and lives of your people, particularly in the life of this local body of believers. For your sake and for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Let me give you a few introductory thoughts about Matthew. In Matthew, Jesus is presented as the Savior King. We're going to sing that song when we respond in a few minutes. He's presented as the one who's come to save a people, to bring them into his kingdom. And he establishes through clear teaching and parables how these kingdom residents are to live, how they are to carry out their lives individually and together. Jesus heavily pushes back to the pharisaical legalistic culture among Judaism. He says very strong things to them. He he reacts and responds in a way that confuses the religious leaders of the day, so much so they ask this question in Matthew chapter 9. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now that question is going to be dealt with in this text. And how does it relate that Jesus was dealing with people in a very different way than the religious community of his day was? Then you come to Matthew 18. It begins with a teaching about the little ones. 
and how we're not to cause the little ones to sin. And it would be better if a great millstone was fastened around our neck and drowned in the depths of the sea if we did so. Then in verse 10, he comes to a parable of the lost sheep. If a man had a hundred sheep and one of them had gone astray, does he not leave the 99 in the mountains and go and search for the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 and never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones, he's going back to the beginning now, that one of these little ones should perish. Revolutionary thinking and teaching of the religious leaders of the day. So Jesus goes after the wandering, wayward sheep. Then you come here to chapter 18, verse 15. And Jesus does something very specific. He gets specific. He's been teaching in parables to where you had to gain the meaning from the story is what he's doing. Now he tells you exactly what to do. He even gives steps. One, two, three, four. He's clearly laying out for us how we are to function together as a church. Now, why did I say all that? Don't get lost. Jesus is saying in my kingdom, you're not to be a bunch of religious legalists. That's not what my kingdom looks like. Now, unless you get messed up in your mind and react, here's the second thing my kingdom's not to be. My kingdom is not to be a bunch of hedonists either. Of people who do whatever they want and claim forgiveness. There is a way in which my kingdom citizens are to live. And when they don't, when they live in unrepentant sin, here's what you do. It's called church discipline. So here's the main idea today. Church discipline must be practiced biblically, prayerfully, humbly, and lovingly with the goal of repentance and restoration. I gave this definition last week. Church discipline is the practice of the church to correct, rebuke, and warn those who are living in unrepentant sin. Primarily, it takes place privately and informally. However, When church discipline is rejected on a private and informal basis, it must become formal and public. 1 Corinthians 5 only dealt with the formal and public. Now we are going to focus on the private and the informal. Before we get to that, let me read this quote. Jonathan Lehman, in his book on church discipline, said this. Formal public discipline works best in a church culture where informal and private discipline is welcomed and practiced. If you try swinging the broad, blunt sword of excommunication before members recognize their general need to hold one another accountable, you are asking for a fight. He goes on to say, public accountability should be an outgrowth of what's already going on in the private lives of church members. In other words, brothers and sisters, It would be traumatic on the life of this church or any church if you went right to step four. If the first three steps are not being practiced in the life of the church. This sermon from God's word is an appeal to you to be obedient to God. To live out your faith with one another. 
we're answering this question. What do we do when a professing Christian lives in unrepentant sin? What is before us is the process for restoring an unrepentant brother or sister through church discipline. Step number one. You go in private and appeal to the individual with truth and love for their repentance. Sidebar for just a second. If you were here when I preached through Matthew 18, I am intentionally today using the exact same outline I used the last time I preached this. I don't want you to think this is something new that Parkwood's come up with. This is a teaching that has been in the life of this church as long as she has been in existence. So you go in private and appeal to the individual with truth and love for their repentance and restoration. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The New American Standard, if you're reading, it says if your brother sins. doesn't have the phrase against you. The SD uses against you. Later manuscripts find this in the later manuscripts that have been discovered. So there's a little bit of discrepancy whether against you is included or not. Now, when you look at the word sins, it clears something up. Now, this is crucial. Jesus is not talking about a moment in time when somebody offends you. They say something offhanded or even mean or hateful. He says, if your brother sins, this is an ongoing, repeated action. This is not a moment in time. The Greek is so helpful. The Greek language is able to show you that. He's talking about something that someone is repeating and doing to us or to the kingdom with intention. They mean to do it. This is where unrepentance is coming in. They're unrepentantly doing this. Now, what do you do? You go and tell him his fault. Now, those are two commands. Go and tell him are imperatives in the original language. So let me just ask a question. Is it optional whether you as a Christian confront another Christian who is living in unrepentant sin? Is it optional? No. Now, this needs to sit on us as a church, as followers of Jesus. If we refuse to do what Jesus commanded, now who else is sinning? We are. We may not be doing the exact same thing that person's doing, but we now are complicit because we are ignoring what is going on in the life of another believer. So to go and tell him his fault, you take the Word of God and you lay it to what they're doing. You show them by truth, capital T, that what they're doing is in opposition to God and God's Word. How do you do it? You go to them alone. This is a quote. The offender should be spoken to and not about. This is sin. Well, I want you to pray for me. I'm going to talk to, to Sam and you know, Sam's probably messing around with his wife. So will you pray for me? That's gossip. And Jesus says not to do that. You go to him alone between you and him. 
And Jesus says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Here's the goal. The goal is repentance. The goal is that the individual would turn from their sin, recognize it as sin, repent of it, and be restored. Now, the manner in which you go about this is crucial. Now, last question. I want you to raise your hand if this is true. If growing up, when you did wrong, your parents primarily responded to you in anger, raise your hand. Some of you are lying. If that's all you know, then that's what you're going to do here. I cannot believe it. I, I need to talk to you. If you don't get anything else I, write, I say, write this in your notes. Anger will not work. It will not. It will not bring about the desired goal. Now, am I saying that sometimes in these meetings it doesn't get tense? No. What I'm saying is attacking somebody who is in sin will never accomplish it. That's why God clearly wrote in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, instructions on how you do this. Brothers, if anyone is called in any transgression, boy, that's inclusive. <laughs> if anyone is called in any transgression, again, the idea is this is an ongoing sin. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. I've learned the hard way that anger will not work. And I've also learned by God's grace that gentleness does. That when you approach someone in gentleness, sticking to the truth, lovingly not allowing them to buffalo you, and proceeding to press the matter, God blesses that. Sadly, though, even when you go in gentleness... Sometimes people refuse to repent. So you proceed to step two. You take two or three other faithful believers with you to appeal to the individual with truth and love for their repentance and restoration. If he does not listen, that is, he doesn't repent, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, if this is something that other people know and the, and the witnesses are brought to bear on it, that's crucial and important. The problem is, how do the two or three of you get to know each other in this if you're doing this in private? For there to be two or three others that you to know that they witness, there's got to be some public nature, and that's going to require more speed in which you act. So let me create a scenario. Whoa. About to trip. Create a scenario for you. Let's say a wife comes to me as pastor and says, my husband is, is in an affair. And he hid it from me from a long time, but I now know that he is. I've confronted him. He's denying it. But I know it's true. Will you go with me to confront my husband? Don't answer out loud. Am I right or wrong to go? I am right. By the way, I would not have met with her by myself. Someone else would have been involved in this conversation. I would have taken someone else, thus two or three, and we would sit down with the wife leading the conversation in what's said. We are now corroborating what she's been saying to this man for weeks or months. 
We are confronting him and what he has done. And we are appealing to him to repent. Now, semi-sidebar. If you've gotten to two or three, do you think, we're still using our individual, our man here. This could be man or woman, by the way. It's not just a man thing. I'm choosing men on purpose because I am one. Do you think he's just right out going to tell the truth? You deceiveth thyself if you think he will. He's going to lie. He's going to lie up one side and down the other. He's going to call her a liar. He's going to say everything, every meal she never cooked and everything she's ever done wrong. He's going to point his finger at her. So if you go, let's go, big boy. Let's go. Come on. Step out of the parking lot. You going to win him? No. Gentleness and truth. How about Listen, when somebody is in sin, those of us in the body of Christ, we know something's wrong with them, right? You know something's wrong. So you take those things and you gently confront. There is not a time frame. This is not one moment, one meeting. This likely will require multiple meetings. And let me just say this clearly to you. If you, who are part of a growth group, see these things in somebody's life, you're obligated to follow this together that one of you go and confront. If you're refused, you keep it in the confines of that group of people who know and love each other. And two or three go. If they refuse to repent, if it's clear that they are characteristically unrepentant, then you proceed to step three. You tell the church so that the body of Christ can appeal to the individual with truth and love for their repentance and restoration. Jesus just bluntly says it. If he refuses to listen to them, the two or three, tell it to the church. Now, initially, privacy was the goal, but the ultimate goal is the restoration and the repentance of the sinner and the purity witness of the church. The desire here is not that the church would gossip. That is sin. This should be communicated. And let me say to you, this shouldn't be something that comes to the floor of a members meeting blind to the pastors and elders. Telling it to the church should first include those of us who are in leadership so that we might also appeal. But when that's over, when they're not listening, then we tell it to the church. And the way that is done is a clear, concise explanation of what is done. The sin. And the appeal for us is now to appeal to this brother or sister to repent. Now, when you leave, when you leave, and you go get in your car to go home after you hear a moment like this, this should not be the conversation. I knew it. I knew it. He's a rascal. You certainly should never, even in innuendo, put this on social media where the rest of the world hears it. I'm being emphatic here. You want a call from me? If we ever get to this point, you and I are going to have a one-on-one if you go to social media. This is a matter of the church, not the world. Here's how we ought to get in our car. Tears ought to cloud our eyes until we get home. We ought to be broken that it has come to this kind of moment 
that someone among us who professes to be a follower of Jesus is so hardened and unrepentant that they will not listen to two or three. And now it is to the rest of us to approach them in gentleness and love and plead with them to repent, to come before God and plead for their repentance. Leon Morris said, when the offender sees the whole group of the believers in the church opposing his or her behavior, surely, surely they will repent. Sadly, though, the sinfulness of sin will grab some so tightly that the last and most drastic step will have to be taken. Step four, that will treat the individual as if they are not a believer with the desire that they will repent and be restored. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, what does this mean? Jesus ate with Gentile, with tax collectors and sinners. What does he mean here? He means, as it would have played out in the mind of people living at this point in time in the world, a Gentile meant a non-believer. Treat them as a non-believer. That's not ethnic. It has to do with what they believe. Treat them as a non-believer. Treat them as a tax collector. Question, was a tax collector in Israel a Jew? Yes. Who did they work for? Rome. You know what people considered them? A traitor. What an illustration. Jesus is saying they're functioning like a non-believer and they're acting like a traitor. They're acting like something they're not. So what does it mean then to treat them as a non-believer? What's that look like functionally in the life of the church? Number one, the individual should be treated, should not be treated as a faithful member of Christ's church, but as a lost person in need of repentance. They should not be allowed to serve throughout the, the life of the church. They should not be able to normally practice events in the life of the church, such as growth group, as if nothing had happened. They should be refused communion and the Lord's table because their profession of faith is not credible at this point. Number two, the individual should not be allowed to continue the life of the church as if they're seeking first the kingdom of God in which, in fact, they are not. We should, we should not allow them to continue to function around us and among us. Jesus is teaching us clearly here that we're to treat them as a Gentile, an outsider. Paul goes further in 1 Corinthians 4. He says not even to eat with them. Why? Because the individual needs to grasp the weight and experience the consequences of what it means to live in unrepentant rebellion toward God. 1 Corinthians 5, 4 and 5. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you're to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. We want them to understand what it means to live in unrepentant rebellion and to receive all of the consequences of it. Now we know from last week this man repented of an awful sin of incest. So the question is, what do you do when somebody repents? Well, the answer is you forgive them. Now look, at, look after verse 20 at verse 21. And if your Bible has a heading in it, 
it says the parable of what? The unforgiving servant. You think Jesus just by chance followed this up with this parable? Not on your life. Here's what Jesus is saying. How dare you? How dare you? Regardless of how bad you've been hurt, regardless of what has happened to you, how dare you when someone repents, you treat them like they owe you a debt that could never be paid? When in fact... Jesus has paid a debt that you could never pay and that you are to respond to them with the way Jesus has responded to you. If anybody deserves to be barred, it's me. It's you. And when someone repents, we are to forgive them and to receive them. Now, some of you are asking this question in your head. What authority does a church have to pursue church discipline? Or you're saying it in your head this way. What, what right? What kind of arrogant church would do this? Well, the kind of church that's instructed by Jesus. That's what kind of church would do it. Verses 18 through 20 have been ripped from this passage in the context in which Jesus said it and applied in, in all kinds of different manners. Jesus meant for this to be understood as it related to church discipline primarily. Verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am giving you the authority to carry this out. He's not giving the church the right to make decisions that are binding on God. He is saying that the church is to respond to God's word and come to decisions that have already been made by God in heaven. This is God's will. So to bind or to loose. To bind is to excommunicate, to put the brother out because he will not repent. To treat him as if he is living as a non-believer as in fact that is what he is in his lifestyle. I haven't said this all day, so I'm going to get accused. Those of you who didn't listen to the sermon, you're going back. I didn't say this earlier. Once saved, always saved. Got us all whacked up in our heads. To where we can't call sin what it is. Once saved, always saved does not mean the moment you walked an aisle or prayed a sinner's prayer that you're now free to go back and live like you were before you prayed the prayer. Jesus called people to himself to save them from sin and to make them a new creation. The expectation of a Christian is that they are a new creation. This, this idea that we're just to watch over and say, I can't question their salvation. Well, it's saved, always saved. Now, do I believe that a true Christian is saved forever? In case you don't know, yes, I do. I believe that a true Christian is saved forever, but I believe there are members of this church that aren't Christians. As best as we have done to discern that. And here's what happens with those who are not Christians. They prove themselves. And when they prove themselves, you treat them like they are. Whatever you bind and whatever you loose. If they repent, you loose them. You receive them. Now, what manner should we do this? We have authority. What manner? We do it in humble dependence. Again, I say to you, if two or three are gathered on earth... 
agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them from my fathers in heaven for two or three are gathered in my name. There I am among them. So here we have dependence. We're asking. We're asking God. It says it will be done by my father. We're asking in devotion. It is in my name. It's in the name of of, of Jesus that we're coming. And we're coming with confidence because Jesus didn't say, if you gather my name, then I'll be among you. He says, I am. I am among them. Though this text is often applied to prayer only, the text must be understood in the context. The agreement includes the action of the church and the members as they move through this process, even as two or three are gathered. Now, prayer must not be negated here. I'm not saying this has nothing to do with prayer. Prayer is a powerful and living thing, and we must come together and pray for the wandering and those who are called in sin. So let me just be practical. When I found myself proceeding to the two or three, before we go in, we decide who's talking. Who's going to talk first? Second thing we decide, if somebody starts getting angry, we call them out. Even literally, call them out. You need to leave. You need to get out of here. You're not helping. We decide who's going to speak. You know what the other two are doing? Would you like to guess? Praying, pleading, pleading with God. And when you pass it off and somebody else starts talking, you plead. You're asking God to move. We are trusting in Him. We cry out for their repentance and their restoration that His will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what then? This is pretty clear. This is pretty clear. We must pursue the wandering and sinning brother or sister. We, not me, not they, the leaders, we, we, the body of Christ, in this specific location, Parkwood, we must pursue the wandering and sinning brother or sister. Why? Number one, for the good of the individual. James chapter 5, verse 19. Brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover over a multitude of sins. The biggest trouble I ever got into preaching was preaching on this text. Church actually had a meeting over it. I was rebuked. Really worked, didn't it? <laughs> but also about that time of my life, something else happened. In my early 20s, I'm still a fairly new believer even though I'm serving and working in the church. One night a man said, will you come in this room? I need to talk to you. He sat me down and he began to rebuke me. And he began to call out my arrogance of sin. Thank God for that man. At first I fought back and Denied what he was saying, but I knew from the beginning, I knew what he was taught me in the, took me in the room for. I knew what he was going to say, and I knew that what he was saying was true. And finally, I broke and I confessed, and we prayed. Thank God for that man. I wouldn't be standing here today if it weren't for that man. 
brothers and sisters, for the good of the individual, go. It's not just for his own soul or hers. It also will cover over a multitude of sin. What does that mean? It gets us to the second thing. It's for the sake of the church. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Are you really, as you really are, unleavened? For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. We've already said it. Christ died to make us new. And what we are new, we are unleavened bread. That we're not corrupted by sin. We have been set free. And when we bring leaven, sin, back in, it leavens the whole lump. It affects the whole church. I said this sentence several years ago when I preached Matthew 18. I repeat it verbatim. Quote, quoting myself. A church that ceases to practice church discipline will cease to be a church. Why? Because sin will take her over. You'll no longer be able to distinguish who the followers of Jesus are and who they are not. Soon a wolf will take over the pulpit. And once he does, it's over. However, a disciplined church in the long run will be a church that displays the love of God. Because the interest of love is that its members reflect Christ. It's for the sake, for the good of the individual, for the sake of the church, last, for the glory of God. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage. In other words, Paul's not working around going, can I do this or can I not do this? We're going to deal with that through Corinthians. Am I free to do this? Am I not free to do this? It's more complicated than that. And I'm not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, I've used this illustration many times. Parkwood doesn't have billboards in Gaston County. I don't plan to have any. I'm not saying there never will be, but I don't plan to have any because this is my philosophy. We release 12 to 1,400 billboards every week on this community. It's you. And you need to own what I'm going to say next. You are communicating Christianity, either good or bad. Your life is saying something to this community. That's why we say of our members, don't miss this. We expect you to live as a witness of Christ in this community. We expect it. It means we won't tolerate anything different. And we're not going to be one thing when we show up here and something else when we leave here. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand and it gives light to all the house in the same way. Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's about the glory of God. So here's this illustration. Last week, I preached 1 Corinthians 5. In the first service, a lady comes in. She had a friend with her. I noticed right off the bat. I noticed this lady didn't like what I was saying. But she listened to every word. I go out into the lobby afterward. I introduce myself to her. And she's not a believer. She is not a Christian. It was one of the best gospel conversations a lost person ever had. Because here's what she said to me. 
you are exactly right. And what you're talking about is why I don't go to church. And what you said needs to be done. She came back this week. And I got to the closing illustration and I said this. The number one reason that people do not go to church in this part of the world has nothing to do with music, choirs, kids programs, youth groups, builds, has nothing to do with it. The number one reason people don't go to church is because of the people who claim to be Christians. Do your research. What the world is looking for is authentic Christians. Now, she hadn't agreed with anything I've said in two weeks, verbally. But I'm preaching, and I look over to my left, and she's going, that's right. (laughs) Do you hear me, brothers and sisters? This is a gospel issue. My life and yours is communicating something about Christianity. What Jesus wants it to communicate is Him. Follow me as I follow Christ. Now, it's very vogue now. There's actually a new blog this week. Well, you know, my life's a mess. Is that really what Jesus wants for you? If you cross-reference mess with the New Testament, is that his desire? Because here's the new vogue thing. I'm a mess, just come be a mess with me and we'll claim Jesus. That's bordering on hedonism. What you're pushing back to is over here, these permanent Christians who go to church and they do everything right. Listen, here's what I know. Sin is crouching at my door. It's crouching. The devil's like a roaring lion, thinking whom he may devour. I don't, I don't say this with any kind of arrogance. Of the people in this room, who do you think he wants down first? Me. Defeat me? That's why you better be praying and pleading for me and for my family. The weight I bear of a testimony to Christ is huge. I don't go anywhere. Anywhere in this town people don't know me. Nowhere. Listen to me. Wherever you go, you take Jesus. If you're a follower of Christ. Live as unto him, brothers and sisters. And let us lovingly and gently and graciously expect that of every person who proclaims to be a follower of Christ and is a member of this church for the glory of God, for the sake of the church, and for the sake of the individual. Let's pray. Lord, help my brothers and sisters who are struggling. I can see it in their faces. Help us to overcome the ideas of harshness and pushing back to things that we create in our minds. Help us not to reflect the world that we live in that just sides up with its tribe and decides what's sin. Your word decides what's sin. So bring your truth to bear in love on our lives. Lead us, we pray. I trust and believe that this message has pricked 
repentance in the hearts and lives of believers who nobody but them and you know their sin. I pray they repent. And I pray for courage for men and women to take the next step if necessary and go to a brother or sister. And may it be done in love. Lord, purify your church. And you do that through the gospel. May we all now come and acknowledge, refreshing and reminding ourselves if we're Christians and some for the very first time, that you are the Savior King. We yield our lives to you in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.